Welcome to The Cut on Tuesdays on Thursday. I'm Stella Bugby, Editor-in-Chief of The Cut. Tumble out of bed and I stumble to the kitchen Pour myself a cup of ambition and yawn and stretch and try to come to life This is How I Get It Done, The Cut series about ambitious women and the way they live. How they deal with their inboxes, people's feelings, their grocery shopping, and their morning routines. It's part advice column, part love letter, part voyeurism. This week's episode is a little different. For one thing, I'm talking with two people instead of one, Topeka Sam and Holly Harris. And instead of some of the more typical questions about life hacks and eating habits, we're talking about how these two women helped get something almost impossible done, convincing Democrats and Republicans to agree on something. Not just something, a piece of legislation that will improve conditions for incarcerated people across the country. That piece of legislation, which is called the First Step Act, will result in shorter jail sentences and compassionate release for prisoners who are terminally ill. It will make it easier for families to visit their loved ones in jail. It will allow female prisoners to give birth without being handcuffed to their hospital beds. And a lot more. The bill was passed with overwhelming support in December, and Topeka and Holly can take a lot of credit for that. And their own stories are remarkable. Topeka grew up on Long Island, part of the only black family in a white neighborhood. When it was time to go to college, she wanted to experience something different from the all-white world of her childhood. I wanted to go to an HBCU, Historically Black College University, because I wanted to be around other kids that looked like me. She chose Morgan State University in Baltimore. And so I was actually getting isolated there because people said, you know, you talk like you're white. You think you're better than black. Um, I found myself trying to find people that would connect with me, and I end up going off campus, hanging out in Baltimore City, and just getting really caught up in dating guys who were selling drugs, eventually thinking that, well, if they can do it, I can do it better. Topeka sold drugs for years. And then for years, she stopped. She moved to New York, wanted to start a business. But one day, she got a call offering her a chance to be part of a big drug deal, the proverbial one last job. But lo and behold, it was a federal drug sting operation. And I found myself in Virginia in... Hanover, Virginia, in Pamunkey Regional Jail. I get to my arraignment, and the judge says that I'm a drug queen pen and a threat to society, and I get no bail. Topeka pled guilty to drug trafficking charges and spent three years in federal prison. And it was in prison that she saw the abuses that would make her into an activist. She saw women shackled during childbirth, denied supplies like tampons and pads, and forced to change their clothes in front of male guards. When she was released in 2015, she wasted no time getting to work on criminal justice reform. She helped make a video about a woman who'd been incarcerated for 20 years for a nonviolent drug offense. The video went viral and caught the attention of Kim Kardashian, who was so moved she asked to meet with President Trump to ask that Johnson be pardoned. After that meeting, the president pardoned her. It was around that time that Topeka met Holly Harris. I was born and raised in Kentucky. I was a middle child of three. Um, my parents um, were had us at the Southern Baptist Church three times a week. Um, my parents were very active in jail ministry, very generous people. I think my 
my mother wanted me to be a pianist or something, and my father really just wanted me to be smart. But instead, I was a cheerleader in the homecoming queen. <laughs> um, so, you know, really just had a very idyllic um, childhood and, and really into adulthood. She became a very successful lawyer and went into politics. I was the general counsel of the Republican Party of Kentucky, elected a lot of Republican candidates, quite frankly, on some on some tough on crime platforms. Um, I Actually, I wrote the brief defending the lethal injection protocol that ultimately went up to the Supreme Court and was affirmed. In 2014, Holly ran a gubernatorial campaign in Kentucky. But when her candidate was accused of abusing a woman and lost the election, Holly's life was thrown into crisis. She began asking herself big existential questions. You know, my identity was very wrapped up in politics, and I was always just the woman that got it done. And now I felt like a woman who really didn't have a path forward in life. Um, And so I was really sort of forced to address some things in my personal life. Um, You know, I'd gone through a tough divorce, and I was a single mom. I, uh, at that point, I didn't know what I was going to do. Then she was offered a job at an organization called the Justice Action Network, and her path forward became a lot clearer. Her path was getting Democrats and Republicans to get behind the idea of criminal justice reform. That's when she met Topeka. I asked Holly how she flipped from being someone whose whole thing was electing tough-on-crime candidates to someone whose whole thing was getting incarcerated people out of jail more quickly. I mean, to me, it's the whole idea of redemption and second chances. I mean, I've needed them. Um, And I never thought I would need them. I always just assumed that I would get married to a very handsome doctor, um, (laughs) that I would have three adorable children, (laughs) that I would live in a big house, and that I would be a member of a country club, and that I would swim in the summers. I mean, you know, I just, I never, it never occurred to me that I would have challenges in my life. Topeka, you mentioned something similar Mm -hmm. growing up, like Mm -hmm. summer camps and swimming and a good life. And and that was what was expected for you. All of it. And all of it. It was expected for me to marry a very handsome, wealthy lawyer (laughs) for some reason. That's very New York. But the lawyer um, have the big house and I would have four children like my mother did. I would live in Long Island like we did, and I would be at home. I would start a business with my husband, the practice or whatever, but then I would be home with the kids. And life was—and I was going to do that by the time I was 25. So that was the plan. (laughs) (laughs) And here we sit. (laughs) Um, Over 25. You guys are like a bit of an odd couple. Well, the hilarious part of it is I remember when I met Topeka. And, you know, I had all of the same, you know, preconceived ideas of people who I always thought, you know, everybody grew up poor. Everyone in prison had grown up poor and, and that, you know, didn't have access to good education. And I remember, remember when we were in New York. The women women in the world. The women in the world, you know. And I was talking about how I grew up with this idyllic childhood. And I I said, I know Topeka just had just totally the opposite experience. (laughs) Topeka's like, what? Like I had money and lived in Long Island. What? (laughs) And so, um, and we've learned, and this has been very helpful to me to share with others. It's like, look, there's (laughs) people in prison are not so different than the rest of us. Mm -hmm. In fact, we have a lot in common. Topeka and I have a lot in common. Um, You know, she has a better glam squad than I do, but (laughs) but we have a lot in common and it's... She does have a better (laughs) squad than you. (laughs) But it's enabled me to get out of this place of empathy and like, um, which is important, but like, we also need to do business with one another and we need to be honest. Yep. And I can be honest with her about things, you know, where I, when I can say, you know, you know what, Topeka, actually, that doesn't sound quite right. Or I 
don't think that's politically palatable. Or, I mean, I can be honest with her in a way that um, in the beginning I was really afraid to be honest about, you know, how I truly felt about something because I was afraid I would hurt someone's feelings or I, you know, wasn't being sympathetic or enough. Um, And um, look, the hard truth is okay. I mean, we can talk to each other as women, as businesswomen, um, as advocates, um, as realists. Um, But also as, you know, two women who are very passionate. um, And now it's not just about winning, but it's about changing laws and changing lives. And that's that's a different thing. Have any of your feelings about being a Republican changed uh, with exposure to some of these other pressing issues? I'm still not real crazy about government. (laughs) Okay. Um, And look, I I think that's true of a lot of people who've been incarcerated, too. It's funny because we always think that people when they get out of jail or prison, they're going to vote. Uh, progressive or with for Democratic candidates. Um, I think there's much more diversity of opinion um, in jails and prisons than people think. But Topeka? No, know? yeah, for sure. And I, <laughs> to be honest, the more and more I work with re- Republicans and people of the Republican Party and really have conversations um, with people of color in the Republican Party even, um, I understand the position. And when I look at the history of the Democratic Party and the things that they've done around uh, imprisoning people, it's not a good—it's it's just not good. You know, I'll say people of color specifically um, are taught you become a Democrat. That's just what you do. You vote Democrat. And not even really understanding uh, much about the political landscape. And, I mean, I'm still a reg- registered Democrat. You know, let's be clear. But what I will say is, though, um, just understand working with a lot of Republicans and understanding the way they come at the work, the way that I see things have expanded. And what I do know is that people in prison do not care who is in the administration. They want to be free. Topeka, did people not want you to work with Trump? Oh, my gosh. (laughs) You want me to answer that? Yes, I, I think, do. Oh, my yes. gosh. So no one <laughs> wanted me to. Um, I mean, no one. I mean, I had and what, people. So, so when people were critical of you, or is it because you were even willing to talk to Trump, or was it because? It was that I was willing to go in the White House. I even stepped foot in the White House during this administration. So Who asked you to step foot? Jessica Jackson with uh, Cut 50. So What's Cut 50? Cut 50 is an organization that is a bipartisan organization that's looking to cut the prison population in half in the next five years um, in crime. And there was a prison uh, reform summit in the White House. And they were doing roundtables about different issues around criminal justice reform. So she asked me to come in to talk about women and then bring some other sisters with me so we would be in this group. And when I went, it was it was good. We we talked about the issues. People listen. They, you know, intensely. They really wanted to know. They asked great questions. And then like I, what did they ask you? Like about like about the conditions of confinement for women, about what did women need when they came home. Um, and she got really specific. Tell yeah. me tell me what you said. So after the round, the little closed door round tables, the next thing I know, they're like, you're going to speak. So I'm like, wait, what? You know? And so they put me on this stage in this space with every single elected official. It was Sessions there. Ivanka was there, like right in the front row in front of me. Um, The vice president was there and I talked about my experience. And so I told them how I had uterine fibroids when I was in prison 
And I was told, you know, you go through a lot of pads. And though I had resources and I could purchase an extra pack of pads that you could only purchase one pack additional. So I would still need to get more pads from them. And they told me that I had to quantify my period. So I had to take the used pads, put them in a brown paper bag, bring them to the mail officer, open the bag, show him the used pads so he can issue me more pads. And when I say more, it would be like a handful. So every time I had to do that. Now, there were officers like, Topeka, just go ahead. Like, <laughs> go ahead, Miss Sam. <laughs> like, we don't want to see this. There were others that actually looked in the bag. Um, she gave this description yeah, in the White House. I did. <laughs> and so, what, what was like um, Pence's face? Like, <laughs> Like the word. No, it was Sessions was in the no, front row. Sessions was in the front row. Oh, I was watching yes. him. The whole time I was watching him going, oh my gosh, he's going to explode. What, and what did, what, what did his face look like? It was purple. Yes. It was purple. <laughs> yes. It was funny. I said I single-handedly got him out of office. That was me. <laughs> he retired. Yeah, I think he actually he retired from that story. I, I think I had a, a huge role in that too. No, but um, like from there, and I remember when the first step back passed and we all did like a celebratory um get together and Jared said to me you know when you gave that description it changed a lot and I was like he's like I can't imagine I was like yeah how do you think I felt like you know having to actually do that after the break Holly describes what it's like to be called a bad strategist despite helping pass landmark criminal justice reform and Topeka reminds us that life is more than work I'm speaking with Topeka Sam and Holly Harris, two women on opposite sides of the political spectrum who've worked together to pass criminal justice reform. They both played a part in passing the First Step Act, which reduced mandatory minimums and allowed people who've been incarcerated to leave jail early for good behavior. The U.S. currently has the highest incarceration rate in the world, and the number of women who are in state prisons have risen 800% in the last 30 years. Before the break, I talked with Topeka about the criticism she took from liberals for working with the Trump administration. I asked Holly if the same had happened to her in conservative circles. Not to my face. Uh, but yes, uh, I, I will say um, I know that there were conversations about people very concerned um, when I've been critical of the White House or critical of, of certain members of the administration. I've heard about it secondhand. I've heard about some criticism secondhand. I, I really um, don't care about it at all. That is one thing I will say about working in this space that's been quite helpful to me. When I say that I have a perspective check now, um, I really don't care a whole lot about, you know, things that people say about me. I probably should care more. I don't read the Twitter comments or whatever. And I will say that's where Topeka, I think, has been very successful, too, is I think you can get really caught up in that. You know, you can be responding to everything and you can spiral out, you know, responding to all the criticism. I think because I've ignored it to a large degree, I don't get a lot of it anymore. What's the meanest so. thing you heard somebody said about you? Oh, gosh. Um, the meanest thing is that I wasn't strategic, you know, <laughs> that by criticizing, um, you know, the White House, that that wasn't strategic. Being called not strategic for most people would be just sort of, well, whatever. But I guess for a political strategist, that is a deep burn. 
It's terribly deep. <laughs> and, you know, it's the worst thing you could say to somebody like me, you know, it was really tough to take. I'd just rather have somebody tell me I look fat in this dress than, than tell me I wasn't strategic. <laughs> so, yeah, that is a burn. You guys are both incredibly passionate about this. Do you have any time to think about anything else? No. Oh, yes. <laughs> No. Oh, yes. I do. <laughs> I do work, kid, work, kid, work, kid. I mean, I mean, and Topeka and I talk about this a lot. She's about self-care and, you know, things I need to do, um, you know, to, um, you know, engage in self-care. Uh, but <laughs> it's a struggle because, um, you know, your phone calls start at 7 a.m. And, like, you don't even have time to shower because you're still on the phone. And, like, you're mute, unmute, mute, unmute. I mean, like, I'm blow-drying my hair. Mute, unmute, mute, unmute. And my kid is screaming at me. And, like, I've got to get him in the car. And, like, I feel like the deadbeat mom through the car line because I'm like, go, 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 go. And then, you know, the the woman that greets me at the door, you know, is trying to be friendly. I'm like, uh-huh, uh-huh I'm, on a con- I'm on a conference call. Thank you. Okay. Uh-huh. Yeah, great. And so sometimes I feel like I'm not present for my kid in the way I should be because I'm constantly the phone you know, and um, I've got to do a better job of that because honestly, that's that's what that's how you end up spiraling, and um, and you can't be a, a good political strategist and understand the needs and desires and the wants of just like everyday voters if you don't live among them. And I definitely feel like there was a period where I I couldn't even relate to just, you know, I couldn't go into a coffee shop and sit down with my girlfriends and just have a conversation without me picking up the phone. They hate my job. They're <laughs> like, we will vote for whatever, criminal, justice whatever, if you will just, <laughs> just, have just a shut up about it and like, let's talk about anything, clothes, guys. So um, <clears throat> yes, I need to do a better job of that and I'm working on it. Well, I... I did start off that way. When I came home, I was on a mission. And I realized 60 pounds heavier um, that I wasn't taking care of myself. Just the simple things like fasting, like walking, um, like going to the gym, things that I did every meditating that I was not doing because, like Holly, my phone starts ringing at five because that's when the phones turn on in prisons. One of my aunts told me, I saw you more when you were, I talked to you more when you were in prison (laughs) than I talk to you now. And so, you know, hearing all of these things, I was like, I have to start doing me. So, you know, I make sure that I have great sex. (laughs) I make sure... Sure, rub that, it in, rub it I, in. That I eat great food. I make sure that I travel. Um, and re- most recently, I had my, my youngest brother got stabbed nine times. And um, I had to take off. I was supposed to be in two different states in like three days, uh, moderating one panel, speaking on another. My mother was like in crisis. And she was like, I called a crisis hotline. And I was like... Okay, because I always tell her, don't hold things and you have to call somebody. But I was like, why didn't you call me? And she said, well, because you're so busy and I didn't, you do so much already and I didn't want to bother you. And it broke my heart. So I canceled everything for that week. And I said, I'm completely reprioritizing things because I remember being in those prisons for three and a half years. And I remember they sacrificed and they came visit. I remember my brothers driving my parents those hours. I remember my friends traveling and paying for flights and hotels to come see me in Illinois. So I'm like, these are the people who love me, um, you know, in a different way. 
because I know, you know, my people out here love me too, but I have to prioritize them like they prioritize me. I have a question for you, Holly, which is you spoke a lot about wanting to win, and that is what drove you in your early life. Now it seems like you actually care about what you're doing. Don't tell anybody that. (laughs) (laughs) Ruin my reputation. How did you know that this was going to be the thing that you would care about over, you know, over and beyond just winning? I didn't. I knew I needed a perspective check. And when I talk about my own challenges in my life, um, and then I hear about the challenges that Topeka has been through, um, I know I'm not supposed to devalue my feelings and all the things that a counselor will tell you. But let's just be honest here. I haven't come near facing the challenges that people who've been incarcerated have faced. And I feel uh, guilt that I um, have been so self-absorbed and selfish that I thought that my life was over because my gubernatorial candidate didn't win. I mean, how absurd. The world is a big place. There's lots of opportunity. You know, you've got to step outside yourself, recognize that there are many challenges in the world, um, and there certainly were some that could be tackled by a gal like me. And so, um, you know, get up, get a shower, get back to work. Do you guys ever fight? No, she checks me, though. (laughs) (laughs) How so? So, like... I was using the word, and you know, I mean, you know, we very often, as a we lobbyist mercenaries that work in this space, you know, will use, uh, you know, just very surgical terms to describe legislation, um, who it impacts, and I was just kept saying the word offender, offender, you know, this offender, this offender, and um, Topeka pulled me aside once, and she said, you know, hey. Not for nothing, but it would be really great if you would not use that word. It's a little bit triggering and, you know, it sort of devalues, dehumanizes, um, you know, the people who work in this space. It would be really great if you would say, you know, people who are incarcerated because we are people. And, uh, you know, I, I happily said, yes, yes, I will do that. Um, and I sound, I sound silly sometimes because you know I'm, I, in my, I'm in my no, head I about watch it. You. No, I see you. And I appreciate that. So oh. when you know you've got to correct somebody, you've got to tell somebody like Holly, hey, or not correct them, but just even awaken them to this issue. What do you do to prepare to say something like that to someone? Well, now I understand that most people, it's not coming from a bad place because they're not educated as to why it's offensive um, or hurtful, harmful, dehumanizing. You know, when you are in prison and someone always says inmate something or state your register number, 42999037, they don't ask you your name, that that's completely stripped away from you. So it's almost like you have no identity. And then you come home and you're trying to rebuild yourself. And then all of a sudden you keep hearing it. So it takes you back that back there. And there was times in the very beginning when I hear it and I would literally shake. I would get anxiety. You would hear the word offender, for example. Offender, inmate, felon, convict, any of those words. And I would actually block the person. I could no longer hear them. So I'm like, for me, it's that extreme. And for many people, it's that extreme. But I usually come to it. I don't attack. I usually have a conversation like, hey, this is why. Let me just I just want to bring something to your attention. You know, people are people. And when you do your time or you have paid your debt, that that debt is done. 
right? And that if I'm wanting to rebuild my life and or I have changed my life for whatever that's worth, for to whomever it's worth, that I should have a right to be recognized as Topeka. Um, and in communicating with me around me, you would communicate around me like you would any other person. And so I always say, you know, people first, then language or experience. So a person who has been incarcerated. I used to be like ex-felon. Well, if I have a felony, I can never be an ex-felon. Like, you know, if I've offended someone, I could never be an ex-offender. <laughs> like, you know, we, we just look at certain things like it just can't be. Um, so I think more people are starting to understand it. And when I do speak, I always speak up. doesn't matter what room I'm in. Um, when I hear it and I have an opportunity to, I always do. And it is like a light bulb you see that that changes in people. I have one final question. If one of our listeners listens to this and says, I am moved to help this cause, what would they do? Well, the most actionable thing, I think, for me <laughs> would be funding for me, for my organization. We're a, a small community-based organization, Ladies of Hope Ministries, and we are fundraising the LOHM.org and any work around our legislative advocacy work through DignityAct.org um, or, you know, Tweet me, follow me, Topeka K. Sam, on all social media platforms. I would say very simply, practice what you preach. Um, be willing to hire a person who's got a criminal record. Yes. Um, be willing to offer second chances to people who've made mistakes. Yes. Um, have a forgiving heart. And to me, that's what's critical. You know, we've got to, it's great to pass legislation and it's wonderful to change policy. But we also, I think, um, as human beings have to have to walk the walk. And that that means offering second chances in our daily lives and then hoping that someone will provide us one when we need it. Holly, Topeka, this has been an incredible conversation. I really, I can't thank you enough for coming together and, and telling us this story. Thank you. Thank you so, so much. Working to what a way to make living. This episode was produced by Chris Neary and was edited by Lynn Levy. Mixing by Sam Baer. Our theme song is 9 to 5 by the one and only Dolly Parton. Cut on Tuesdays is a production of Gimlet Media and The Cut. 